Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Read More Podcast, a show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today I'm honored to have Miami's Edwige Dantica as our first guest. She's written several critically acclaimed books, including Breath, Eyes, Memory, and Brother, I'm Dying, and she's a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. She published two books this year, a picture book, Mama's Nightingale, and a young adult novel, Untwine. Edwidge, thanks so much for being our first guest. Well, thank you for having me, and congratulations. I want to start out with Mama's Nightingale, which is just such a lovely book. I was really blown away by the beauty of it. Now, although this book is for kids, the subject matter is very serious. Uh, It's about a little girl who's sad because her mom is being held in an immigration detention center. You came to the U.S. from Haiti as a kid, and you often speak out on issues about immigration policy. Why did you decide to tackle this subject in a picture book? Well, I, uh, for a long time, would go... uh, visit kids who are in detention and and of course I I have an uncle who died in immigration detention I wrote about him in a mem- in my memoir brother I'm dying so I'm very familiar with this system the the, the detention system or so uh, the the way that uh, immigration and separation affects families my family was separated by immigration primarily when I was a, a child my parents my mother came to the U.S. when I was four, my dad when I was two, and it took eight years for them to to get their papers and to send for us. So until I was twelve, so it's a very it's a, an issue that's very close to me, and I'm very interested in how it affects families, but also how it affects children, and that's the an aspect of it that I wanted to um, express in this in this picture book. Well, you've also been very outspoken lately about the situation in the Dominican Republic where they are forcing people out who are of, of Haitian descent. And you have spoken about this. I mean, you've spoken about this in Congress, correct? A couple of weeks ago, uh, there's a, a group of uh, Dominicans of Haitian descent who came to speak before the um, uh, the. OAS, the international and international bodies in Washington, and they did do a briefing in Congress. So um, Juno Diaz and I, we went up to accompany them, uh, and we spoke to our local representative. I spoke to the staff of Frederick Wilson, who's my local representative here, who's very aware of, of the issue and, and others. So um, just as I did when I when my uncle died in immigration custody, I also uh, spoke before Congress on that, not because we're sort of uh, going to the foot of empire, but because there are these uh, very relations of power. For example, the United States is uh, it trained many of the border guards that are now in the position of doing this deportation. We subsidize Dominican sugar, so it's a very um, uh, it's a relationship that that exists and and that that really there these things are connected to each and every one of us because our our tax dollars are involved just as it is uh, in immigration um, detention you know we pay to detain people and and sometimes they're treated very horribly so um, I engage these issues in my work in the picture book or in, in other work that I've done but also as a as a as a person as a as a citizen 
How important do you think it is for artists like yourself to speak out on these matters? I mean, do you feel like you have an obligation to do that? Well, I think it's it's up to every person um, because there's there's so much uh, that that's, that's going on. I mean, on the issue of we've been watching. This is an unprecedented an unprecedented time in terms of migration, right? Because we've have. Uh, this past summer have had this reality show in our living room of of ultimate horror of these families crossing borders in Europe. I mean, this has been happening um, for many months now, many people coming from Mali, from Eritrea, and other places. Um, but now you people were able to watch it, and, and you see children, and, and these things happen. There, there was a, a conflict on the border between Colombia and, and Venezuela that nobody was talking about. And and all of these issues were were involved with migration. You know, currently the UN says you have something like 60 million, or close to 60 million people who are migrants who are floating around the globe. Some of them are internally displaced. So it's an issue um, that concerns all of us. And and there are a lot of you know there. It, it's up to everybody, I think, to decide. And and it's not up to me to to tell people what they should be engaged. And I think we all um, enter places where we where we feel like our passions are stirred our, our humanity is moved and other things like that so it's up to every person individual artist or not to decide their own level of engagement well back to just the the beauty of mama's nightingale i mean it's a beautiful story but also the illustrations are just so wonderful how does that work in this process i mean do you talk to the illustrator or does she just sort of take your words and run with it well it's it's been really beautiful for me to discover this process it, this is um, my third picture book and the first one I did was eight days we did it right after the earthquake and um, as part of the was a fundraiser for the International Rescue Committee um, and uh, so you work with usually the artist the illustrator and the writer are matched by Annette by the editor someone at the house. Um, so this book, uh, we were matched very a long time ago, Leslie Stubb, who is the illustrator of the book. She's also a writer illustrator. So she's written books for herself She uh, that she illustrates. She lives in New Orleans. And very early on, when we started talking through the editor, uh, you know, who matched us, she said that, you know, Leslie was very interested in um, and using being inspired by Haitian art. So you see a lot of the, the colors in the picture book are very reminiscent of, of Haitian art and, and what Haitian artists do. And, and since it's a very heavy story, it's really, uh, it's, a, it's a bit sad. It's a story of separation. Um, I think she tries the, and does a really great job of, of illustrating it in a very colorful and, and happy way that that's really is a contrast to, to some of the sad elements of the story. Okay, let's move on now to your young adult novel, Untwine. It's about a serious traffic accident that forever changes a family of twin girls, Giselle and Isabel Boyer. What made you decide to write about twins? Well, I've always been extremely intrigued by twins. I mean, I think when when I was um, expecting my daughter, before I knew you know the specifics I was so I wanted twins so much that that actually I was afraid that the next one would be twins <laughs> but I've always been intrigued by twins and um, twins have appeared 
in other uh, ways in my work, but this was the first time um, that I broached that. I love the mythology of twins and so this idea of of kinship, of having someone who is your friend or <laughs> you're not your friend, but you know, who's tied to you in this very specific way for life. So, um, and it's, this is also Untwine. It's a book for young adults, but I think adults could um, also enjoy it. It might be a sort of a quick read for adults as well. And it's my first book that's um, set in Miami. I've been living in Miami for about 12 years now. And, and this is the first time I've said something here and I um, and it, it's, it was very interesting to sort of like you know I'm like I'm gonna just go all hog there are actual places there's the Perez Museum there's the Little Haiti Cultural Center and use actually actual um, landmarks in it and so these girls are kind of you know these fictional girls are roaming through Miami and living their story and it was also I mean I really love the opportunity of writing about a, a, a kind of Haitian American family that would be say like the family of my brothers um, who were born here and who are Haitian but you know sort of more also American you know the father was in the army the mother is a makeup artist yoga devotee <laughs> you know it's it's a it's a very it's, a, it's kind of a younger generation of, of um, Haitian Americans who are connected to Haiti but are just as grounded here and and their their initial struggle at least in the story is not identity they've solved that you know and they have other uh, other things that they're dealing with so I'm I was also very excited to get to that point in my work you know to sort of go from breath eyes memory where you have the coming of age and that's the story that's closer to mine but moving towards the story too that is more like uh, the story of my brother's children well that's one thing that I really enjoyed about this book was seeing you know, you mentioned that it was set in Miami, and I saw all these things that I recognized, and there's even an incident that you have in there that made the news. And it, it made me wonder if that means that maybe Miami now is starting to feel more like home for you. I mean, you've been here for 12 years, but it's still, is it, I mean, <laughs> does it feel like home now? Is that why you decide to set this here? Will you maybe set some more work here? Well, we'll have to, we'll have to see. I mean, the my next uh, fictional work is is set um, on it's set on an uh, not Haiti this time, but sort of an island place like like Haiti, but combining elements of different places. But it's always been tricky for me to write about places that I'm actually living in, and so I think that's part of the that's been part of the practice of also writing about Haiti outside of Haiti. Um, and I wrote about I, mean, I wrote about New York. Uh, when I was in New York, but it took a while to get there. And so, I mean, it's, this was a good, you know, I, I thought I'm going to try it. This was a really good trial. And it's really, it was interesting because they're, you're not dealing with imaginary places. So there, it's almost like walking on a stage where you don't have to invent the set, right? It's already there. And, um, and I really enjoyed that part of it, of, of actually pulling from the present. It's also not just Miami, but it's so Miami in the present which was um, interesting to, to do. Well, for a large part of this novel, Giselle is trapped inside her own mind, you know, due to her serious injuries in the crash. And so we see everything. I mean, we, we're just right there with her, you know, with all of her thoughts. 
she's also your narrator. But I mean, for so much of this, it's not her interacting with other people. We're just seeing her thoughts and her, you know, flashbacks and her trying to figure out what's going on when she's uh, very, very sick in the hospital dealing with a serious concussion. Was it hard for you at all to get into the head of this teenage girl? Well, that was the thing that was different about it. People have often asked, like, is it right? Is it different writing about for young adults or for or picture book than it is an adult narrator? Because I've, most of my work is for adults. But the the every book has its own specific challenges, and this the challenge of this one was just um, writing about a sixteen-year-old girl, but in the voice of a sixteen-year-old girl because it's a first-person narration. I'm saying I did this, I did that, and so. I really had to tap into, um, you know, and just really observe the 16-year-olds <laughs> in my life and run a couple of things by them. But it's like pretending to be any other character. You know, I have a, a book called The Dew Breaker, uh, at the center of which is a is a torturer, a henchman, and I'm not a henchman. <laughs> but I had to, you have to really inhabit your characters. You have to kind of step into their their shoes and and really become them. And it was very similar for a 16-year-old girl. And in a way, uh, what we were talking about before in terms of it helped having, you know, actual places and having these, uh, having the set, if you will, already. Um, and then you can focus all the energy on the character and, and really help the process. And there's a part of it too that was very um, identifiable to me because I was writing this book. I, I'd started a version of this book when I was in graduate school. It was called Precious and then someone else <laughs> and a character named Precious. But it was about this girl who's sort of nerdy, who is in love with, you know, with this sort of um, nerdy boy and then it's like a fabulous, you know, these things that I would, I, you know, I, I would notice people do in other books. So I was like, okay, I'm going to put this away for a while. And, and finally, when my mother was sick, you know, was, was dying last year, um, I started, I picked that up again and, and, and rewrote it this way. And I think a lot of the twinning has to do with also, um, you know, being in a hospital room and realizing that someone you love very much is, is slipping away. And someone sort of out of whose body you came, you were one at some point and, and that idea of separation. So I think that also um, allowed me to explore, you know, being in the hospital with my mother, um, watching her sleep while she was sick or dying. I had a lot to do with also stepping into, like imagining what could be going through someone's mind and in that sort of precarious position. And once you did start working on this, I mean, how long did it take? Were you able to draw upon some of the work you did when you were in grad school? Or would you say this is a completely different work? Um, I did draw on, on some of that version. I still have that, that manuscript. Um, and it's there's, there's little pieces of it. Because first of all, that one was set in New York. And, um, and I... I discarded a lot of it. I kept, you know, I, but it, it, I think emotionally it was new because I was experiencing grief in a very different way or, or anticipating grief, which is also a, a very a sort of powerful process, you know, coming to terms with something like that. And um, so it, it was, it's a very different uh, book, but I had, I had picked it up at different points along the way. And I was always afraid because I was I wasn't um, you know I was used to writing for adults and so I would I would look at the book and I would say oh that you know now I'm 
the, it sounds like this other book it sounds like this other book and finally I just was like okay I'm just gonna write my book <laughs> and not worry about uh, about like what it sounds like and, and other things like that there's an image in the novel that you return to several times and that is of the the twin girls holding hands and that becomes very important there and it it's sort of a, a, a focal point and, and representative of their relationship. As you were writing, when did you decide to sort of, you know, key in on that image and make that so important to the book? Well, it was actually one of the, the first things that came up, you know, that and um, them in the back of that car and just that idea of separation being like letting go, like physically having to let go. And, and the way they, the, you know, these sisters are very close and they, their reflex is to reach out for one another, you know, is to grab each other. And so um, it's an image that I think that, that, that the character, uh, Giselle, you know, uh, goes back to again and again because, sort of that's, because that's the last time she held her her sister physically. I mean, one of the things that I'm finding out in grief is that, you know, sometimes when people are trying to console you, they'll say, well, you have your memories. But um, what you realize is when you're grieving is that you want the person, you know, you want the body, <laughs> you want, you want a hug, you want a kiss, you want to lie down next to them, and you want to talk to them, you want to hear their voice. And even if you have a tape, or you have a thing that you're listening to, it's just really not the same. So um, it's that longing, you know, for that connection, for that sort of tangible contact that I think we all long for when we are grieving someone we love. And, I, and for them, that's that moment, you know, the, that moment where, where they're no longer touching. And I think for, for, for Giselle, that's really the, when she grieves, that, you know, when, when there's no, no longer any possibility for a real physical contact. You did uh, covered a lot of medical ground in this because everyone's dealing with very serious injuries after this crash. Did you have to do a lot of research to prepare for that? Yeah, I did. I, I do a lot of research for all my books uh, because I feel like I want to, because there are always sometimes unexplored plot elements in research. Like you can come up with something you're like, yeah, this would be great for the plot. So I'm always... Um, mining for those things you know I'm always looking for those things and the danger of that is that you can be doing research forever <laughs> you know it's like oh I want to know the next and the next thing so I did I, I always do a lot of research so that I could at least sound halfway like I'm know what I'm talking about so I did do a lot of uh, research on the medical end and um, and just try to fill things in but I also gave I had a, a sort of an out in the sense that it is a first-person narration, and um, people always complain, no matter what the book, that like that teenagers and YA novels know too much <laughs> already. You know, like they already sound like they know too more, much more than they should. So I also had to balance that with the information I had to try not to. Uh, it is a first-person. She's saying I this, I that. So it doesn't sound like like she has um, access to information that would be beyond her age range but also her level of interest as we have seen it in the book and in your research is it you're doing a lot of reading are you interviewing doctors I mean how far do you go I do a lot of reading I watch a lot of YouTube videos <laughs> um, I 
talked to doctor friends. I had talked to like the legal element too. I uh, talked to a lawyer friends, and so you, I really uh, try to reach out to uh, when when I have access to people, I do it. But research is a little bit easier now than say you know I've wrote a book called The Farming of Bones about uh, the massacre of Haitian cane workers in the Dominican Republic, which happened in 1937. And back then, you really you were limited to card catalogs and paper and old articles and and books and things like that. But now, it's so much broader. You have access, of course, to all of that. But you can also, I mean, I can. If you're doing research, you can do Google and see a neighborhood. You can virtual walk a neighborhood, see what's on the corner, etc. So, there are a lot of more possibilities due to you know the internet uh, in terms of what kind of research you could do. The family in this novel, uh, just like the family in Mama's Nightingale, these families are of Haitian descent. And I was just thinking that a lot of young readers, this might be the first time that they've read a book with a family like that. And I don't know how much knowledge the average kid would even have about Haiti. I was just thinking about if your knowledge just comes from the TV news, you know, you're not getting a full picture and a lot of what you see is negative. Do you, how important do you think it is for you to present a different picture? Because part of Untwine is even set in Haiti. We see a few scenes there. Yeah, well, I'm not, you know, I think one has to be careful and sort of in going down that path and that mission because then um, sometimes people get very angry with me. You know, people are Haitian or Haitian-American will get very angry. They say, why do you, why is it always sad? Why do you always show, you know, misery and so forth? And um, and they say, show the beach, show the thing. And there's a little bit of, there's both in, in Antoine. So when they go to Haiti, this family is a very privileged family, which they, also, they acknowledged um, as well. So I think we, I, I think it's important for me and it's always been, you know, since I, I started um, publishing, it's important to show a nuanced and um, neither too sort of sugar-coated, neither too, you know, like sensationalized the way we're used to being portrayed, but something that feels true to me. And of course, my truth may not be somebody else's truth. They may not write their books the way I would write my books. Their stories may not be my story. And that's where I think it's also important to give a writer some space in terms of their individual experience, because often um, writers from uh, marginalized groups or, or, or immigrant groups or different groups, or your book is supposed to be like anthropology or sociology, um, when it's a creation like everything else. Um, so it's, it's more important to me rather than be like celebratory or condemning in the fiction. You know, I do that in nonfiction. I think nonfiction, you can make statements, you can make declarations, but in, in fiction, it's important to me to tell a good story, an engaging story, and to present characters that are three-dimensional, that are complex, that are nuanced, that love, that cry, that hate, that, you know, that really, it's like all of us that are complex like all of us and and that level of humanity um, is important for me to show not because you know I want to show that we're human you know that's that's a given but also to show that that we're complex we're we're complicated like everybody else 
Here at Read More, we like to know about how reading has shaped your career as a writer. Do you remember the first thing you read that really resonated with you, that just that stayed with you, that made you, you know, feel something strongly, um, that was just a little bit different, you know, than what you had read before? Mm-hmm. Well, I used to, I was always told stories when I was little, so um, we were told a lot of stories, we listened to a lot of stories in my childhood, and um, so and those stories were mostly folk tales but the first book I was given was Madeline in a house in Paris that was covered with vines um, by my uncle when I was four and I remember being so blown away by that by the spunk of that little girl and um, and I you know I kept that book and I've, I've read it to my girls and they, they don't love it as much as I do <laughs> but that was my first book and I just remember feeling like wow, this little girl has so much power and so much personality, and and um, and then another version she would travel, and it was just uh, that was the most uh, striking book for me. Um, and then through the my childhood education in Haiti, we read a lot of French writers. Um, we read excerpts, like so as you went up in classes, so you would get more of the book. And I remember thinking, you know, re- reading uh, Emile Zola's La Sommoir, uh, which, if I'm not mistaken, is about the these people in the laundromat. It's about, it about this kind of poverty that I thought um, was, you know, like when you're a kid, you're not, you know, we weren't well off, but we weren't told every day you're poor. Uh, you knew people who were lacking things, and you kind of saw a certain environment around you that was different than, say, the neighborhood of your school and things like that. So I remember thinking, wow, Zola was like, like, could could be a Haitian writer. I remember when I read that, and then I read more as time went on. And when I came to the U.S. at 14, I read Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, and it blew me away. I read a lot of it with a dictionary, and that was the first book I ever read in English, and it was the most powerful experience, and I think gave me permission to just pretty much write whatever I want, because I, that book felt so fearless to me and fearless um, about personal experience, about being able to expose yourself um, in a way that seemed to have a larger goal, you know, that um, for the sake of, uh, without being hyperbolic, but for the sake of liberating others, for the sake of freeing, giving them permission for their own self-expression, I felt that so powerfully in that book. What are you working on right now? You you told us a little bit about what you're doing, but uh, can you give us a little bit more? Or I know some writers don't like to do that. Well, I'm what I'm immediately working on right now is uh, is a book, which is a long essay on um, writing about death. So Grey Wolf Press has a series of that's aimed at writers, but other people as well called sort of the art of, so there's the art of description, the art of setting, the art of, of uh, subtext, the art of time and memoir and fiction. So mine is the art of writing death. And um, I took the project on after my mom passed away last October as a kind of um, way to make myself read and re-engage. Um, and so I'm about halfway through it. It's a, it's an essay, it just reads. You, I've been reading, um, just and a lot of rereading, sort of how people write about death. So, I'm rereading a lot of Toni Morrison, um, Madame Bovary, Flaubert, Tolstoy, and 
um, some contemporary writers as well, Jamaica Kincaid, the autobiography of my mother, which begins with, so my mother died on the day I was born and things. Um, so I've just been reading those books and they've been really kind of um, healing for me. A lot of people I know who've lost uh, close family members have said it takes them a while to read. Um, but I was reading, you know, I was reading in the hospital. I was reading pretty much right away because I, I, I guess I could, that's lucky for me because um, it would have been, because I wasn't writing um, too much after. You know, I was editing these books and things like that. But um, the reading has been really, really helpful to me in terms of seeing how people talk about death and how they talk about their grief and, and, and what kind of, uh, how they make their art from it, you know, I think that's been really instructive and, and, and kind of comforting for me. Has the death of your mother changed the way you approach your writing at all? I mean, you mentioned that you couldn't, or you weren't writing, you know, while she was sick and then... No, I was. Oh, you, yeah. Oh, you, I'm sorry. You said right you... Right after. Oh, right after you were not. Mm-hmm. So what was that, how has it been like since then? Has it affected the way you approach your work? Well, it's certainly approached, um, it certainly affected the way I, I approach my life, I think, because, you know, my father passed away about 10 years before my mom did, and um, and suddenly when you, you lose both your parents, it's like you're next in line, you know, your, your, your place moves up in line. And I think, you know, in, in the whole, there's a whole process of, so this five stages of grief and, and um, you know, anger, denial, acceptance, and, and two others that I'm blinking out on. But um, I think one of the things they don't tell you is terror. It's like absolute terror, um, which you certainly feel like, oh, if my mother can die, you know, if both my parents can die, I can die any time. And that for a while, I think, was like, that ties into the work because you feel like I want to do um, work that sort of is in line with that state of mind. You know, I want to use my time well. I want to do the work that I want to do. And you really start start thinking down the line in a different way, just both both in my life, which in my work, which I, I tend to be, you know, I think all working parents, you know, uh, especially working mothers have this dilemma or sort of like the balance that people are always talking about. And certainly I feel like since my mother's passed, my balance has tipped more away from work and more towards family and relationships. And um, that changes, you know, but um, but the importance of those things over sort of um, sitting down alone all the time is, is change in terms of just really engaging the world itself. And my work is still very much important to me, but it's it's easier to see that it's not the only thing uh, worthwhile that I can be doing. If for some reason you could not read any new work, I know you're doing a lot of reading, you mentioned as you're preparing, mm-hmm. you're writing this essay about writing about death, but if for whatever reason you, you could not read any more new work, but you could only read three things you've read before, but you mm-hmm. could read those as much as you want, mm-hmm. what, what are the three things you think that you would just read over and over again and you, that you think could actually sustain you? Well, I think one would definitely have to be um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And I guess if I could have three, I'd have to choose really fat books. 
and really sort of rich and layered and nuanced work and that's definitely um, one of them and Toni Morrison's um, Song of Solomon certainly and uh, a third one would be I guess one of my friend Danny Laferriere's books um, because there's there's humor and heart in his book um, it would be I guess he has a uh, Je suis un écrivain japonais. I'm a Japanese writer is the translation. Or I would probably interswitch with one of the others, but um, one of his to sort of uh, liven it up and also uh, feel that connection. Are there any writers that you feel like the literary community is sort of sleeping on that, you know, these people don't get enough, you know, attention from readers or from the media, but they're doing some really good work? Well, I think um, we, you know, in America don't do enough translation and um, I'm always you know there there are some wonderful Haitian writers for example that I think would would really found a great audience um, I would uh, I would advocate all day for for Haitian writers and uh, especially the ones we already have in translation uh, there's Yannick Lahans who won the Prix Femina in France last year um, Evelyn Trouillot, Kate Mars, and, um, and those writers have been recently translated. Um, Louis-Philippe d'Alembert, so the books are available in English, but from um, smaller presses, um, presses that have done a wonderful job of getting their uh, translations, sometimes their university presses. But I would love um, to see more translations done in the United States from from. Uh, places we haven't heard much about, not just uh, uh, Haiti, as I said, we've had these translations and sometimes these books are incorporated into, uh, into uh, courses. Um, Patrick Chamoiseau's Texaco uh, is, would be one of those books too, like if I could have a bonus book and my three to read and reread um, would be along that line. And it, and it had a wonderful translator, uh, a, a, a couple, uh, was my, was, uh, was Marie Gajri, who also translated a wonderful Haitian writer, Marie Vieux-Chauvet. So I would advocate for translations, um, especially from literatures that are lesser known in the United States. And why do you think that is that, you know, here in the United States, we don't tend to seek out those writers, you know, the translations? Um, it's in other countries, people are reading, you know, novels that are written in English, you know, in their native language all the time. But we seem not to do that so much here. I don't know. I mean, I think that's that's a question that's debated all the time. And there are more, uh, there are more than there used to be, like in my experience, in terms of like sort of my uh, limited grouping that I mentioned, there, there, uh, there are a lot more than we had, say, 10 years ago. But... Um, I think maybe there's maybe there's some kind of insularity to it because you're right. We are uh, books that are published in America are translated proportionately much more uh, abroad than than uh, other books are translated here. So maybe you know, but um, maybe it also has to do with the fact that there's so many books published here. It's something like in the millions every year. So maybe people feel like, okay, I've, I have enough of my own <laughs> um, to to read. But it's always wonderful to open yourself. And I think since this is uh, the show is called Read More, it's um, I think it's important for readers to 
kind of cast their nets outside their comfort zones to um, to try to experience something new that that is not the first thing you reach for. Is there anything that you have tried to read, maybe you know, maybe more than once, and you just can't get through it? I mean, maybe something that other people love, but you just there's a, a disconnect there for some reason. There are a lot of things like, <laughs> like that um, that it wouldn't be polite to say. Um, but well, could you say it about maybe like we don't a, talk about a contemporary right rest? <laughs> well, I think. Um, you know, there was a book like this a while ago. It says how to talk about books you've never read. <laughs> and I think a lot of people uh, do that. Um, but I, every time I answer this question, I feel like I have to go try again. But it's Joyce's Ulysses. Like, I, I, I feel like I've gotten really far in. But it's one of those things where you feel like, am I, am I, I'm not getting it all, so I have to reread, I have to reread. So I think that's that book will take me a light, like a, a my whole life to to read and in a way that that I feel like okay I'm lost in this and there there's some gorgeous uh, you know parts of it but for it's hard for me to to like put the hole in my in my head and I think that's always a question that's hard to answer because you feel terribly dumb you know it's like... no I, d- I don't think you should feel dumb you know I I've read so much and there are a lot of people that have this and I, I remember reading somewhere there's some people that just said I'm not going to feel bad about this anymore I'm just going to mm-hmm. say I'm not going to read that for whatever reason and it will be okay I mean do you have anything like that that you just said you know this just isn't for me oh yeah there there are whole writers like that where I I think also the the older you get and I'm that writer for people too. I know they're like, she's not for me. And so that's what also makes me feel comfortable. There, there are tons of writers like that where I feel like I've tried this. I'm not, it's just not down my alley. And I accept that. And I think the, the older you get, the less time you have, you know, you have two kids running around, you have a lot of, you know, you're doing a lot of shuffling. You, so you really accept that you're not going to read everything and you're certainly not going to pretend to read things. Right. And, and and I do I, I was never able to to start something that I didn't finish but now I I I have to like if if I'm 50 pages in or like 75 pages and I'm still not we're still not connecting unless it's Ulysses that I'm going to keep trying <laughs> um but uh, then I give up I can't um time is you know I'm 46 years old I have more reading probably behind me <laughs> than I don't have another 46 years uh, that I uh, that I can foresee so you just you have to be like a little bit just like every other thing uh, has, got, has gotten shaved off a little bit and, and so with the reading so I really um, you really want to read things you love you know and, and, and relish in those things rather than like force yourself um, to read something that is just not working out so I I um, I do do rule out like I'll, if I'm intrigued I'll try but I won't like persevere if if I it seems like it's not working out what are you reading right now I'm reading for this um, for this death book so I'm mostly rereading um, so and uh, what I just finished reading for the chapter that I'm in I'm on this um, the, the last chapter was on um, suicide and this chapter is on uh, 
capital punishment. So I just reread um, Ernest Gaines' A Lesson Before Dying. And it's, it's really a powerful experience reading things at different places in your life, right? And so I read it, I think I read it in high school, um, maybe, maybe after high school, but I read it uh, when I was still very young. And, um, and then recently I reread it again and just like was like the power of the language, the description, you know, just re- also reading like a writer is really interesting. Like when you're reading, um, sometimes you're reading books that are like your books, you know, like it's like I'm stuck for this and this person does that really well and you read for instruction. So I also, you end up reading tons of books that are related to whatever you're working on, even if it's not a project like that. So what I just most recently finished was uh, A Lesson Before Dying. And then I am um, also reading through, and it's a glorious experience, um, Jasmine Ward's three books, because we're um, having a conversation next week at Brown University um, on stage. So I'm just I'm rereading her and and uh, Men We Read is just astoundingly like, I read it in galleys um, right before publication, but it's just rereading it again um, in light of all of that we've had with um, the police brutality and, and violence um, against uh, black and brown men and women, but reading that particular gorgeous rendition of of grief and loss and and that's just been a really powerful experience reading her and I love having the opportunity to read a writer that way just like from the you know three books thank goodness if it were 20 it might be harder but um from her first book to the to uh, where the line bleeds I think and salvage the bones and men we reaped Edwidge it's really been a pleasure having you as our first guest on the read more podcast Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor talking to you, and I wish you very much luck and continuity with the podcast. Thank you. You can find out how to win signed copies of Edwige's latest books, Mama's Nightingale and Untwine, on our website, readmorepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Read More Podcast. I'm Marva Hinton. Please join us again in two weeks when our guest will be Tanana Reeve Dew. And in the meantime, remember to read more.